focus, clarity of mind, and practice, and keeping at it until you have the breakthrough. I think all of those apply as much to golf as they do to being an entrepreneur. You know, without all of those things together, it's very hard to make either work. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Summit Nagpal was born to a pair of healthcare entrepreneurs and raised in Kashmir, India. When he was 13, Summit's parents brought him to the U.S., where he saw diversity for the first time. He followed his parents into Ivy League, starting at Brown, but left to follow his muse, Steve Jobs, at Next. Today, he's still looking at technology as a key driver of innovation, this time in healthcare. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywer. And I'm Lisa Sunan. We're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Well, so Lisa. Yes, David. So I was really um, both intrigued and psyched for you because you wrote a really interesting um, piece recently about sort of 13 rules for healthcare startups that's sort of totally blown up. It's yeah. gone super viral. <laughs> Everyone's reading it. Sort of, it's become like a thing. Do you want to uh, sort of, for our listeners, who the two people under a rock who might not have seen this, um, and we'll include a link in the show notes, um, summarize sort of what you said and uh, what was sort of um, your experience with that piece? Sure. Well, it's interesting. I um, Somebody out there had retweeted an old uh, Mark Cuban piece, 12 uh, Lessons for Healthcare, or, excuse me, for regular non-healthcare specific entrepreneurs about, you know, startup rules, which was really good. I thought, and Someone out there, another person, Jessica Damasa, you know, sort of pointed at me and said, what do you think about those kind of rules for healthcare companies? And I dashed off, you know, the, the 13 that came to mind. Um, and it really struck a chord with people. It's been so interesting. Um, probably the, the the biggest readership for any blog I've ever written in 12 years, which is fascinating to me. Which of those do you think stood out the most? One of the ones in my mind where you were pretty uh, skeptical about things like preventive health in terms of a market. Yeah, well... That definitely annoys some people. <laughs> but unfortunately, in my business experience, it's impossible to get that stuff paid for well. I think that actually, though, the one that was the most controversial for readers was the one where I said you should not, you know, think about an MVP, a minimum viable product in healthcare, because you can't move fast and break humans. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of people who agreed with that vehemently and a lot of people who were really bothered by that. You know, how do you try things? How do you test things if you can't? start with minimum viable product. And I, you know, I just fundamentally believe that if you're going to commercialize something, it better be pretty good and pretty reliable, uh, especially if there's a clinical side to it. Yeah. I just thought there was so much real experience and kind of sort of the essence of Lisa's non-BS worldview <laughs> distilled into these, um, you know, principles or frameworks. So I really hope everyone has a chance to, uh, to look at them and react. Thanks. Well, um, speaking of healthcare entrepreneurs, we have mm. a great one with us today, Samit Nagpal. And so welcome to the show today, Samit. Thank you. Really you. pleased to be here. So let me ask you, what's your most important uh, you know, rule or guideline when you start a healthcare company or, or manage to advise others on the topic? Oh, wow. Um, so there's a very simple guideline that we've been following in, in, in my most recent ventures, and, and that is follow the money. Not from a read perspective, but from a where are we spending it all and how can we fix the waste that is happening in healthcare spend. Mm -hmm. And we're consuming 18% of our GDP on, on, on this stuff. And everyone, 
probably knows about the Gartner report that said in 2011 or, or thereabouts that said that we're wasting you know, 42 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Um, if we chase that and figure out how to take that cost out, that waste out, that's the key rule for, for new healthcare companies. Obviously, there's a lot of innovation to be done in everything from personalized medicine to genomics to, you know, all there's, there's tremendous innovation to be done. But, yeah, that's true. Uh, but, but the if you, big if, thing, if you yeah, chase the, thing that's, you know, the waste, you're chasing somebody's revenue. That's what I was going to say. You know, Victor you... Fuchs quote about, uh, yeah. you know, every dollar of waste is a dollar of someone's uh, income. And uh, I'm not aware of a lot of success chasing the waste. We, we couldn't agree more. The, the big challenge with chasing the waste, of course, is cost takeout. You know, it's, you know, chasing the waste is, is about reducing inefficiency and taking cost out. And, and there is no mechanism under which you wind up with the folks who are spending the money winning. Um, and, and that is, you, you hit the nail on the head, that is the heart of the problem. But the reality that is now staring us all in the face, and this is not just in the U.S., this is in virtually every global economy, the reality that's staring us in the face is that governments and, and payers and employers can't print that money anymore. The gravy train has, has come to an end, and cost is now the biggest driver in any kind of reform. Every entity is struggling with, with cost takeout. The incentives are completely misaligned. And so either we're going to manage to take cost out or we're going to bankrupt our economies or new players are going to en enter the space and actually very successfully take that cost out over the dead bodies of, of the entities that are creating the inefficiencies. I mean, what, one way or another, the bottom line is we can't print more money. Yeah. And so this will change. It's simply a matter of when and, and how, but it will change. So as an entrepreneur, have you ever broken any of these sort of fundamental business rules and found out the hard way? Well, the thing that I have followed for the longest time is, is a focus on solving problems around access and efficiency and uh, the patient experience and the consumer experience and outcomes and so on. And the big lesson learned in, in every one of my ventures really has been that things won't happen, improvements won't occur, workflows, practice patterns, population scale change won't happen just because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so um, have I broken this principle of follow the money? I broke it in my first several businesses. And over time, learn that the only way that scale will happen is by actually following this principle rather than just chasing better outcomes or just chasing a better consumer experience, that it has to be accompanied by cost takeout. And we are now sitting in a market where new entrants are poised to, to come in. Mm -hmm. These entrants have tremendous scale. These are big tech companies, for example. They have tremendous scale. and in many ways, when, when I'm asked questions about what's the payment model for something or what's the incentive for something, a lot of these companies really don't care because they can, in fact, invest to build the highways, the railroads, the pipelines, on top of which this new model of care is going to operate. And for that reason, I think it's just a matter of time yeah. um, that this will happen. So you moved, to back up a little bit, um, you moved from Kashmir to Brookline when you were 13 years old. It's quite uh, a transition. Yeah. And you said your parents sold their healthcare business, their healthcare advisor business. Your dad came to, 
Harvard to get an MPH. Your mom went to Boston College to get a degree in French literature. What what was the message in that for you? Did you sort of learn well, some kind of? Great question, Lisa. You know, or, or you know, in retrospect, now that you can think about it this way, you know, what what did you observe from that? Well, the big life change that occurred that moment wasn't coming here as much as what I found when I when I got to Brookline. Better um, bagels than in Kashmir, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> There's well, probably I, I not a couple in most beautiful places on, on the planet. Right. Um, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. I had one of the most amazing childhoods I, I could ever dream of. Um, and I wound up in a place where, you know, my, my eyes, my, my future, um, my thoughts about what the future could hold were, were just transformed. Um, and the biggest reason for that was that I landed in a, in a community that was just intensely diverse. Um, there were kids from, if I remember correctly, 40 plus 41 different countries at that high school, that public school that year. Hmm. And I had never been in an environment that was so diverse, where there were so many ideas, where there were so many different um, aspirations and so many different ambitions and so many different drivers for that's what everyone was doing. And and so, you know, that's when I started actually seeking out, well, what the heck am I into? Was that experience, the sort of multicultural experience, different from what you had experienced uh, in Kashmir? Well, very much so. Where I grew up was very homogenous. Um, and you know, there were centuries-old feuds and centuries-old um, patterns of, of living. Well, I'm, I'm making broad generalizations, right, right, right. obviously. But there was, a, there was a pattern to life. And the pattern to life that I found where I landed was just all about seeking, essentially finding your own truth and mm -hmm. discovering who you are and discovering what you can do with that and, and then going and doing it. Perhaps I'm, I'm exaggerating the extent of, of the impact, but, but that's certainly what I believe happened, that mm -hmm. where I went with my career began there. So you said that one of the things that gave you an opportunity to do that you didn't know really about yourself was to write, that you found out you were a great writer. And that um, <laughs> ultimately that led you back to healthcare. You want to talk about your the the best thing you ever wrote, and and then the most uh, relevant. Oh wow, my experience in Brookline was again probably lots and lots of people now have this experience, but I had never really been exposed to writing myself. As you can imagine, in a lot of cultures around the world, education is very test oriented, and you're working towards matriculation goals rather than discovering your own strengths. Mm -hmm. And so when I was put in a class on creative writing, I had no idea where to begin. I had absolutely no idea that I could even write. And with a, an incredibly encouraging teacher, um, off I went and wound up writing some pieces of fiction that I never knew were in me. And that sort of set me on, on a path to become a fairly prolific writer. I, I write and I and I present, and I, over time, use that have used that to really have clarity of vision, clarity of thought. And that's really what the impact has been over time. You, you know, at Amazon, for example, the, the standard story about how, how projects are presented is you, you show up with a two-page um, proposal, and it's all, you know, you have to write it. It's not slideware. It's not 
slideshows. You have to actually. Well, I think I thought through. it was like a six and or eight page thing, and you have to well, you spend there, the beginning there, of the meeting are reading it. Right. So there are two different levels at which we've we've all heard the same stuff. You know, there are two different levels at which they operate. There's the two pager and the six pager, and and so, and and that's all about forcing clarity of thought and clarity of vision, so that people aren't wasting each other's time, and and that they they've actually invested the mental energy that, and brought the creativity necessary to to have a full thought. Chris, a quick question Pardon about me? that. Because um, yep. for the, the limited writing that I've done, people are saying, well, why, why do you do it? And to me, I always thought it was an example of, uh, you know, when you're forced to write something, it sort of it forces you to think through something. And so writing, the exercise of writing can be just a way to clarify your thinking and understand what you think about stuff. But I don't know how general that is. Is that how you think about it or does it fulfill a different function for you? That's, uh, it fulfills two, di two different functions. One, I write just to clarify my own thoughts. And it does exactly what you just described. Um, it's, it's one of my most important tools. And, and if I can't put something down in writing, then it means I haven't really managed to, to think a problem through. And then second is really, that's, it's just a really great way to then communicate your thoughts because one, you've had clarity. Two, now that you have something that, that is clearly laid out, well, it's a great tool for mm -hmm. helping others actually, um, you know, bringing others along on the ride with you. Um, because now there's something they can actually sink their teeth into and, and think about. I think all of this is about being able to communicate effectively. And, you know, I, I happen to also produce plenty of slideware. Um, <laughs> but all of that has to be accompanied by commentary. And all that commentary doesn't, doesn't happen um, without clarity. It's not effective without clarity. Yeah. And, and I think writing really helps with that. So I, I don't think any of this stuff is mutually exclusive. Um, yep. but writing is just fundamental to how I do it. You see, so you're along the way, you're, you're in Brookline, you go to school, you get into Brown, uh, following, uh, your dad into the Ivies and, and we're studying computer science. Which like a lot of our other guests, actually, yeah. a tour Butte and Zach yeah. Haney and yeah. uh, several other folks. A lot of brownies. To say nothing of my brother. Um, <laughs> but you were, you were far from writing, you were studying computer science and then you heard this Steve Jobs siren song and left college never to return and join Next Computers, working side by side in some cases with jobs on enterprise sales. How what was that like for people? Is there a story you can tell us that's different than you know, sort of all the ones everybody's heard, or maybe a personal experience about um, your interactions with him? Sure, certainly. Well, so my experience began with with Next and and with Steve's creativity and 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 work it began well well before Next. My first computer that I bought was was a Mac Plus. And hmm, that's unusual. You know, I, I, I love the, the the technology and got got very good at at just about everything about it. I remember having arguments with my roommate about, you know, he was asking, he was absolutely convinced that the world didn't need hard drives bigger than twenty megabytes, and I was adamant that I really needed to go out and buy an eighty megabyte hard drive because you know I was going to have documents. Um, well, all of that stuff, of course, is is history, and and you know here this we are. This is next computers. What, <laughs> what 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 happened with with next was I walked into computer science lab one Monday morning when every Sun workstation had been replaced by a next machine, and these gorgeous black machines. It was love at first sight. Um, I absolutely had to work for 
or or with these folks because these were just gorgeously produced pieces of hardware. They had this incredibly beautiful operating system that that took everything that Apple did to a next to the next level. As you as you know, the the current Mac OS is is based on Next, and a lot of the the Next team came into Apple when when Apple bought Next, and we're seeing you know years and years later the impact of of Next continues. Um, so I I wound up being sucked into that world. I'd, I'd read a long time ago an unauthorized biography of Steve. I was very inspired by him. Um, found found a book at the Boston Public Library in in probably the mid '80s, and just absolutely um, loved the story about about Steve. It, it was the story. I I still remember the book. It, its title was "The Journey Is the Reward," um, and it was an unauthorized biography of, of Steve. And um, and very much in in keeping with that, uh, everything that I've done um, along the way, it's it's been as much about the journey as the destination. Um, and so I followed uh, my heart into into working with Next. Wound up working with Next and and with uh, with their enterprise team. To by then Next had made this transition into being a uh, a development platform, not not a hardware company, and a development platform that that had launched a, a new way of programming at scale. Um, not that others hadn't done this before, but next, as as Steve um, was able to do, had really taken some great ideas and and brought them into um, into a commercial context. And the the idea that we were selling to Fortune 50 companies was, hey. You know, if you work with us, you can run circles around your competition because all these great ideas you have in your head, you can produce them much, much faster with this new thing called object-oriented programming. So I became an expert at that, wound up actually becoming one of these folks called object experts at Next, and wound up selling um, sometimes with Steve uh, into Fortune 50 types of companies. Um, and And I remember... You know, with the the experience working with him, there there are people who are robust and there are people who are not. Um, and um, in in a in an employment context, being able to take criticism, being able to deal with being recognizing that you're being pushed hard for for your own good. Um, and with Steve, if that was who you were, well, you could thrive. And if you weren't, well. It was the wrong place yeah. to be. Just not. Um, so I, I so, learned that I was robust. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, so you ultimately left Next to start a company, Method Factory, around object-oriented program. Pretty geeky thing to do. Um, but the company yep. was focused on creating longitudinal patient records. That company ultimately transitioned and became WellLogic and focused on data aggregation, visualization. And, the, and with an application to digitize second opinions, for instance, this is all back in the mid '90s. I mean, these are problems and challenges that are barely even, you know, t- we have barely scratched the surface of yeah, solving today. That's all done. Yeah, really. <laughs> How did you, you know, and then and then that company again evolved further into uh, becoming a subsidiary of Alir, working on HIE. Um, all these things very ahead of their time. What was the healthcare information exchange? Yeah, healthcare information exchange. What was the 
experience of being ahead of your time? I mean, did you serially ahead of your find time. <laughs> this to be exciting, yeah. frustrating? You know, is it good to be ahead of your time? Lisa, great question. And and the answer to that is all of the above, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. But I think going back to the first question you asked, the biggest um, advice to entrepreneurs when I said follow the money, I think the the essence of what I learned over that experience was things don't get done just because they're the right thing to do. Things don't get uh, adopted or bought, not forget adoption. Things don't get bought because they're the right thing to do. Um, they they get bought if there is either pull from from consumers or or there is a financial um, implication where you know some there is clearly an impact on the bottom line. Um, money drives all these decisions, and right. health information exchange. There was no financial model for the longest time that made it viable. Um, I remember a, a meeting with a very prominent um, CEO um, of a very large health IT company where you know, I used to meet with him every every few months. And we were talking about he was actually um, proposing to buy, buy my company. And we were talking about interoperability. And I'd asked him a question about you know, his views on interoperability. Obviously, every mm-hmm. one of these large health IT companies with electronic health records had had ambitions to be all things to everybody. And, um, and you know, world dominance was was just how, how they thought. And yet, um, they were all leaving huge amounts of, um, of, they were all creating silos around the world mm-hmm. uh, with their implementations, with Individual patient information scattered around in, in those silos, never never to be joined up, with all the challenges that that created for care delivery and costs and efficiency and outcomes that mm-hmm. that we all know, right? All, all this stuff is just really there's there's no secret here. We all know what 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 this is about. And his answer to my question was, I'm never going to interoperate. It's 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 going to dilute my my intellect, my, my IP, it's going to dilute my stock price. And so that was it. Um, I think over time, uh, I feel fairly stupid in, um, in not realizing sooner that we were chasing the wrong, that the right problem the wrong way. And you know, this ties back to what I've just said about big tech, that the problem that we're look, looking to solve in healthcare around interoperability, I think, is being solved. Has we have tried to solve it historically at the wrong scale of entity, um, joining up data and making sense of its um, its in, incompatibilities and making sense of the incentives across all the organizations where that data lives and and causing some kind of alignment around those incentives or or getting all of those folks to pay for joining up that data. Now, none of those things ever actually work at scale. There are, again, back to what I've said before, there are exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some important exceptions. But by and large, 20 years later, 
we're still living with fragmented records. We're still yeah. living with people no, having true. to hand carry their records from one place to another. I mean, there's interesting. There's and little so, companies trying to deal with this, right? Seekster, you know, among others. But I, I think right. we're still a long way from uh, from the promised land. And it's, I think, a lot of it, like you said, is very much tied to the the financial incentives being misaligned around this. So you kind of dwelled in this area for for some time, and 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 ultimately sold that company to Alir and bought it back when uh, when that company uh, you know didn't really commit to what it was doing and or what you wanted to do. Um, you've started other companies since, um, at least one I know focused on home healthcare of a certain type. Are you just yeah. a perennial entrepreneur? And I, I think and I asked the question <laughs> in the context of. You've moved to Comcast, which is about as big of a company as you could possibly go to. How do you as an entrepreneur reconcile that opportunity where you're just, you know, used to spinning up in companies, but now you're gone to one of the one of the biggest ones there is where, you know, it's hard to to do that kind of innovation inside a very, very large company. Well, so my my first Except if you do it within that. a two hour window. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Um, well, so my, my first experience at that really was with Alir. And, and the idea there was, you know, how do we achieve scale? How do we actually get this thing um, moving at scale with, with a company that has you know, a, a global footprint and you know, tremendous amounts of capital, tremendous amounts of asset? And, and at Alir, you know, we could have pulled it off. Um, there were, as, as happens, um, you know, we've seen this happen to other companies ranging from all scripts to Athena where activist investors show up and, yeah. and plans have to change. Well, um, was the wrong, it was the right idea, wrong time, um, which didn't mean that it, it shouldn't be done. And so ever since that experience, I've been really looking for the next place where I, I can contribute to bring these ideas to life but very much at scale. My work at Accenture was all about that as well. Um, the, the reason I joined Accenture, just wonderful company, had a, had a great experience working there, had some real success working there, um, bringing the ideas that, that we've just talked about, bringing some of the solutions that we've just talked about um, to life with companies at scale. I was privileged to work with some of the biggest tech companies in the world in, in my tenure at Accenture. And um, what I had been uh, really, what, what I had been thinking could be possible um, because of the, the scale and the agility of these companies, I, I found that to be generally highly um, um, relevant and, and, and true that these companies really did have an opportunity. They were staring in the face of opportunity where they could actually uh, change um, and, and, and create um, the, the momentum that smaller companies, even you know, companies with several billion in revenues, are unable to create just because these companies have such great scale and they can take such great risk if they commit to it. And so my experience at, at Accenture, you know, Comcast became a client at, at Accenture, and the, there, there are very specific problems that we were looking to solve, and we um, realized that we could actually solve them at scale in, in highly 
unusual ways. Mm-hmm. Can and I ask so you a quick question? When Comcast on... said, come and, come and make the dream happen, you know, I joined. Let me ask you a quick question because I think there's such an interesting um, paradox because on the one hand, you're right that large companies have you know, the resources that in theory should enable them to take uh, you'd have more comfort taking the sort of you know large risks and doing things that are sort of riskier on the edge. On the other hand, that's not typically what one associates with large companies. You associate with far more conservative, small C behavior, um, and mm-hmm. you know you associate kind of more startups with doing things that are edgier or, or involving more risk. How how do you sort of view that the contrast between the resources to take risks and this sort of organizational disinclination to do that really seriously? Seriously. Sure. I, I think it's really, again, about not, not every company can pull this off. Um, the, the kind of stuff that happens at places like Amazon and Apple and Google, and, um, and I will put Comcast in the same category, um, is the, the innovation, the pace of innovation, the things that these companies invest in um, is quite different from you know, um, the run-of-the-mill run big company. But by no means uh, am I, you know, naive enough to say that every big company, because of its resources, can pull off uh, innovation at scale. I think it takes a very special kind of organization to have both scale and still remain innovative and and turn on a dime and be able to do the kinds of things we're describing here. And I think that's really what I mean when I say big tech is poised to make this change. It's those kinds of companies, and you know, I. I happen to be working for one of them. That's great. So here you are now at Comcast working on your entrepreneurship opportunity. Um, but in real life, you're your family man. And uh, you told me that one of the things you like to do is golf with your kids. Don't be obsessed with your desires, Danny. I love that movie. The Zen philosopher Basho once wrote, a flute with no holes is not a flute. And a donut with no hole. It's a Danish. He's a funny guy. Um, do you find any parallels between the experience of golf and the experience of uh, entrepreneurship? Oh, wow. So I have not thought about golf from that that perspective, but but let me try to, to run with this. Um, <laughs> Here's your creative writing opportunity. So I think, you know, with golf, the big lesson that I'm relearning, I, I grew up playing golf in one of the most gorgeous golf courses on the planet. When when I was growing up in in Kashmir, I was um, I learned how to play golf, and you know the golf course was very close to where we lived, so it was something that that I used to enjoy doing. And in some ways, it was when I started picking this up because my kids wanted to take a shot at it. Um, so it sweet. came right back. It was like riding a bike, except all the rules had changed, by the way, and <laughs> you know, well, literally everything I had to relearn. I, I was swinging and hitting the way I used to, you know, decades ago. And now with, with all the new tech, you even hold clubs differently. And I had to unlearn everything that I'd learned. So, but, but, you know, jumping ahead, lessons for entrepreneurs, I think focus, clarity of mind and practice and keeping at it until you have the breakthrough. I think all of those apply Mm -hmm. as much to golf as they do to being an entrepreneur. You know, without all of those things together, it's very hard to make either work. That's so, awesome. There I mean, you have can it. Can I give you a uh, golf clap for that answer? <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't really play golf unless there's a windmill involved. But uh, what occurred to me was uh, you got to take a lot of swings at a tiny target that's distant to make it work. Um, this is one sport that's been like overly an- analogized for business. It's got to be golf. So. Oh, I don't know. Baseball, I think, wins on that one. But in any event, doesn't matter. It's a very interesting answer. Samit, it was so great to have you here today. Really Thank you it. so much for the opportunity to talk to you on Tectonics. My pleasure. It's always great to talk to you. And thank you so much. Today's guest, Samit Nagpal, is Senior Vice President and General Manager at Comcast Health, and he was speaking to us from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I thought that was a really interesting conversation, Lisa. You know, one of the questions that I continue to wonder about is, for something like healthcare, is this, you know, when you think about what solutions are going to work, is it really as a local solu- you know, solution or a global? Because his argument was that, oh, a company with global reach can really have sort of the connectivity and, and to make the difference and can really solve the underlying problems. Mm-hmm. I wonder about that because so many of the actual problems that that, that medicine and healthcare deals with are so in tr- deeply local that I worry that some of the global sort of providers, these global visions don't always sort of understand just how provincial and intrinsically provincial and local, almost artisanal, not always in a bad mm-hmm. way. I mean, in some cases, in a very personal way, sort of healthcare uh, is or needs to be. And um, by sort of insisting on we're going to have these sort of general platforms, they're missing so much of the essence of healthcare. So I think how you balance the opportunities of scale. Yeah, I think about it a little differently, I guess. I think about it that if you look at, comp- I, here's a weird analogy for you. Look at McDonald's, okay? International scale, they, you know, nobody can distribute product like them, push it through the channel. They have infrastructure to enable that to happen, money to enable that to happen. But they customize for local markets. In Maine, you can get a lobster roll at McDonald's, right? In Russia, you can get borscht at McDonald's. I mean, all these things. So I think the combination of skills you can bring to bear on massive amounts of infrastructure distribution combined with the ability to customize locally could be pretty powerful. It's sounding like your comment is, um, you you mentioned McDonald's, but it's also like the cheesecake factory that Tool wrote about, what's a decade ago Oh, I don't know. Didn't see that one. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's sort of like yeah. the classic New Yorker. Um, uh, you know, we sort of talked about how they have this sort of general standard, standardized general template right. with some local customization. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, you can follow David Shaywitz writing at Forbes and the occasional Wall Street Journal Review. And you can follow Lisa's writings at Venture Valkyrie. We are especially grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Well, a lovely chatting with you, David. Ciao, ciao.